podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This week on Red Inca, we talk about Jimmy Anderson. He doesn't talk much to the press. He started being slightly more verbal of recent years through his podcast, but he's still mainly known as a grunter. But in lockdown, he finally opened up until we got on the guy who chatted to him. My name is Samant Subramanian, and I'm a freelance magazine writer living in London. Here we talk about Jimmy versus James, sledging, run-ups, fitness, changing how you bowl, the time I annoyed Jimmy at an award dinner, and all that bowling Jimmy has done, and may continue to do. At the moment, Jimmy Anderson is actually running further than he's ever run before, partly to protect his calf. And that's kind of where you start your journey with Jimmy Anderson in the run-up. That's right. I mean, a lot of the reason for doing this piece was because Anderson is obviously now 38 years old. We're unsure of how much more of him we'll see. I mean, there's always a lot of speculation about retirement. And so in the process of talking to him, I found it really odd that he had modified his bowling action at this late age, to run more, not less. And, you know, the way he explained it to me was obviously really interesting and made a lot of sense. But I just thought that paradox of him growing older and still running further in every delivery that he bowls, that sort of seemed to really encapsulate the fascination of James Anderson for me at this moment in time. One of the more interesting things we don't talk about a lot, and I think you might have the number there, hopefully one of us remembers it off the top of our head, but the amount of deliveries and therefore the distance that these guys have to run. So I remember they put trackers on the South Australian bowlers quite early on, and they worked out that a bowler like Anderson, someone like Chad Sayers, was basically running half marathon throughout a first-class match, which is even less than Jimmy would run. And when you think about how many times he has to run in over and over again. The fact that at his age, he's put on extra distance is, uh, you almost want to say, mate, just live with the injuries. Let's <laughs> not put any extra pressure on yourself. But these fast bowlers run an enormous amount. And they also quite often field in the outfield. So they're spending a lot of time going to and from in the outfield as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the statistic that I had in the piece, as of January 2020, he had bowled 32,779 deliveries in test cricket. And that totals nearly sort of 600 kilometers. This is, of course, a huge underestimate of the actual amount of running he's done for England, right? Because you have net bowling, you have the time when he used to play one-day cricket, you have no balls, for example, that aren't counted in the number of deliveries that are registered against him. So the number could be sort of many times higher, but just the number of legal deliveries that he's bowled for England and the distance he's run for England in that time just blew my mind a little bit. And the fact that he was still continuing to run at the age of 38. The 38 thing is quite interesting. So he's had a couple of different injuries. There was the, was it a rib or a chest injury, which is quite common for fast bowlers. And you can understand how that happened. But the other one he had is the calf injury. Now, the calf injury is what they sort of call, especially in sports, the old man's injury. It's the point where, you know, your body's starting to say to you, maybe you're not a professional athlete anymore. He spent a lot of time out of the game at the same time when he would have been ramping back up normally through Lancashire, which he couldn't do because of the whole COVID thing. must have been quite interesting to get that aging, injured body back ready for cricket again. Yeah, I mean, he came back from South Africa, and I think the consensus was that the reason his calf got injured was because he was accelerating into a sprint a little too fast. And maybe at that age, you need more time to work up into the fastest part of your action. 
And so his solution was to lengthen his delivery run up and to ease into the sprint part of his delivery. And I think he did that. He worked on it through January and February and part of March. And I think he was sort of ready to go to South Africa with Lancashire for a sort of pre-season tour. I think it was 10 days or two weeks in South Africa. And just as they were training for that, as he told me, you know, one day they just turned up at the stadium and they were not even let in. They were just told to sort of turn around and go back home. And that was the beginning of lockdown for the cricketers of the ECB. And I think it, as you said, it kind of frustrated him that he had solved this problem. He'd gotten fit again. And just as he was primed and ready to bowl and he was looking forward to the season, the season itself came under sort of so much uncertainty and doubt. You talk about bowling and the stresses it puts on your body. And I think you used the um, Frank Tyson quote about how unnatural an act it is. It's very interesting that we don't talk about this that much unless you're talking to an aging bowler who has no knee cartilages and is moaning about it in a bar. It's very rare that we talk about just how weird bowling is compared to, I mean, the very obvious one is baseball pitching. Baseball pitching, if you look at it, if you don't come from a baseball country, chances are you still know how to throw a ball. Right. If you don't come from a cricket country, the odds of you actually knowing how to bowl a delivery are a million to one, probably, unless you happen to have YouTubed it. And just recently, my boys are six and seven. They would have gone on to some cricket this year, but because they couldn't, I had to train them myself. When you realize the unnatural acts that you need to actually bowl a delivery, it is such a weird thing and it puts so many strains and stresses on your body. I remember when I was a kid, one of the first cricket books that I read was Dennis Lee's big book on bowling, in which he described how his body broke down at a certain point and then he had to build it back up. And the process of physically building your body to be able to cope with the stresses of fast bowling, I mean, that really stayed with me. It's so interesting that Lily's partner in bowling was Tomo, Jeff Thompson, who had probably the most stressful action I can imagine for a fast bowler, right? I mean, it was just all shoulder, mm. relatively short run-up given the pace that he generated. And so I remember distinctly thinking about Lily and Thompson at the two polar opposites. You know, Lily had this classical action designed to minimize the stresses on the body and Tomo was the complete opposite. And that really stayed with me for like the longest time. And so when Anderson started talking a little bit about his calf injury and then I asked him a little bit about what it's like in general to be a fast bowler. He told me about how he learned bowling literally by watching other cricketers on TV as a kid. So he would sort of go around the house imitating the actions of Wazim Akram or whoever it was. And so I found it had almost sort of come back, ironically, full circle, that he was walking around the house again during the lockdown this year, unable to bowl anywhere, but just sort of almost going through the actions because that's just what his body had learned to do. Yeah, I mean, that was something I found quite interesting that he talked about if you stop bowling, you get to a point where your body almost loses the, the... I don't think he was talking about the strength, was he? I think he was talking about the sort of the muscle memory, which is a very weird term because obviously muscles don't have memory. But right. the, the way that it implants on your brain, your brain plasticity. So he was very worried, and the physios seen the same, of them actually losing what it is to bowl. I did want to ask, and obviously I didn't talk to any spinners for this piece, but I do wonder whether the same thing applies to spinners as well. But the, it strikes me sort of the run-up is, I guess, the most natural part of a fast bowler's action. Everybody knows how to run and you run fast. But then to sort of turn side on, to bring your arms into the kind of position that they need to be in to deliver the ball, to land again after the delivering the ball, but to land in a way that is as soft as possible on your body, to be ready to take a return catch if it comes back to you, to keep your eyes on the ball throughout. I mean, it's just such an unnatural sequence of events that Anderson's point was, and I think his physios and many physios around the world think, 
is that if you don't do it often enough and if you stop doing it for a while, the coordination of those sequences of events just sort of slips past your grasp and you have to relearn them in a way that might take much longer than you'd like it to take. Well, I mean, as a very bad club spinner, I bowled one spell this year. I didn't bowl the previous year. didn't play a game the previous year and then probably bowled a, a little bit before. If you give me a cricket ball, I can run through the crease with a normal leg spinner. Well, not normal, nothing normal about the way I bowl, but I can run through <laughs> the crease, deliver a normal leg spin. But it's nothing like what I had bowled a year before because I've completely lost that groove. And even though my run-up is still the same length, I still take off off the same foot, serve the weird left arm thing that I stole from Mushtak Ahmed. I have all those sorts of things in my run-up. I know that when I hit the crease, it's completely different. And when I bowled in this game, as I said, I must have been two years away from bowling in a game. Sure, I've occasionally picked the ball up in the net and bowled a little bit to my friends and, and my kids in the backyard. But I did realize that like every time I come back, my action is just different. I'm putting it back together. For a fast bowler, that must be a real danger zone if your body is twisting in a slightly different way, if your foot is not landing exactly the same way. You can see all the red flags, and we still don't know everything that we need to know about fast bowling. I would say Australia's done the most research on fast bowling and yet also has the most injuries of anyone that goes into fast bowling. So we're a long way away from it. And there's also that thing of we're not sure if young bowlers should bowl more or less we really don't know that much about it. And Jimmy Anderson is almost at the apex of this because he comes into this incredible professional environment, the most professional cricket environment ever, really, English cricket. He comes in when they were still amateur and he gets to the point now where they've got catapult things and things on his arms and all those sorts. Of, it's really interesting that he's gone from being the most amateur player through to almost like a poster boy for professional cricket. Yeah, that's right. But I mean, Anderson is interesting for another reason as well, which is that there was a point around 2004 when England's sort of bowling coaches tried to remold his action, because I think maybe back then there was still sort of the remainder of an understanding that there is such a thing as a classical action that everybody needs to copy if they are to stay as fit as possible for as long as possible. I think Anderson's natural action is that he'll take the last leap of his run up with his right arm up by his ear and his spine, if you look at the photos, his spine sort of arches backwards. And so the, at the time in 2004, they tried to remold that action so that his right arm was close to his stomach. His spine stayed more straight. When he came back down, he would keep his eyes on the batsman throughout, whereas his natural tendency is to really sort of look at the ground as he is delivering the ball. And this really presented a problem for Anderson because it cut a little bit off his pace. It prevented him from swinging the ball the way he is used to doing. But most importantly, his back really sort of started to give him a lot of trouble and eventually resulted in this big stress fracture that forced him to take this long break after he came back from a tour of India. The other big understanding that fast bowling coaches have gotten over the years is that if there is a natural action to a young fast bowler and he's been doing it for years, you sort of try to keep him in that action unless it's really giving him problems because the, each body is different. It knows how to adjust in a different way. And so you try to leave it alone as much as possible unless things get quite dire. And that goes back to the whole argument that I've always had, which is the fastest bowler, and I don't mean the fastest bowler ever because I think people have bowled quicker than Tomo since then, but the fastest bowler compared to his contemporaries ever was Jeff Thompson. Right. And the best batsman compared to his contemporaries ever was Don Bradman. And those two techniques weren't taught and no one else has ever really tried to pick them up. Steve Smith is probably the closest we've ever had to batting like Bradman. So you do actually understand that there is a lot of natural variation in the way that these things go and that we think that sidearm up, 
and bowling in this particular way or batting and staying leg side of the ball is the best way to go, whereas actually Bradman and Smith bat in different ways. So it is quite interesting. But the other thing is that I found he basically has two big interventions in his career. You talked about the negative one, but there was also a positive one when Watkinson took him and helped him bowl swing, which again was slightly changing his technique a little bit, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think Anderson sort of knew... He wasn't an express bowler ever, so I think he knew that he would only be really effective if he learned how to swing the ball. So he was always trying. He knew sort of in theory what the seam position should be and where the shiny side should be when it aged a little and so on. But I think he was still having trouble getting the ball to swing consistently. And this intervention that Watkinson carried out one morning, essentially at a cricket match, is that he taught Anderson to keep his two fingers next to the thumb on the ball until the very last minute, sort of almost flick it forward a little bit. Flick is a bad word, but sort of almost propel it forward in a way that he could direct the ball better. And he wasn't doing that earlier. And then just this one sort of, well, it sounds simple when we talk about it, but this one really basic kind of intervention helped Anderson quite a bit. I mean, Anderson and Watkinson told me this. He put it into effect in that very game and right away he started achieving the kind of consistency of swing that he was looking for. And that really changed his game. I mean, that's the other big intervention. And then, of course, he learned all these other tricks from all these other bowlers. You know, the in-swinger, I think, by watching Zahir Khan. There was the sort of the cross-seam ball, and he picked that up from a bunch of Pakistani fast bowlers. I mean, he's quite open about the fact that he really watches the game and tries to absorb as much as possible by seeing other bowlers bowl, whether on TV or in real life. The other interesting thing was it sort of brings those two coaching interventions, the bad coaching intervention and the good coaching intervention together. There are a lot of cricketers with Jimmy Anderson's talent, maybe not with his physicality, the ability to continue to bowl, but I think there are a lot of cricketers with his talent. What he had the ability, and and this is probably twofold, one is through that injury, he probably got to change who he was as a bowler a little bit because before that, I mean, you said he wasn't an express bowler, but I think England were thinking... This is a 90 mile an hour bowler because he could bowl right. 90 miles an hour, not right. 95, but he could certainly bowl 90 miles an hour in an era where they were desperate for everyone to bowl 90 miles an hour. And then the other thing is the way that he continues to pick up things and learn because he's not, if you compare it to Stuart Broad, Stuart Broad talks about this quite openly and is well known as almost a mad scientist. He's always trying things. Jimmy Anderson never appears to be trying anything until he comes into a game and he's already perfected it. Right. Very different ways of putting that together. But I wonder if he hadn't have had that injury and hadn't have had to reshape who he was as a bowler, if he would actually still be bowling at 38 and whether he'd be anywhere near as good as he is now. I think that's right. I mean, I think Glenn Chappell told me that the injury sort of was really at that point, in a perverse sense, the best thing that could have happened to him because... He wasn't really as successful as he would have liked to be. And then on top of that, all of this tampering with his action, you know, all of that had combined to make the first few years of Anderson in international cricket not quite stellar. And so he had some time off not only to get his back back into gear and to get his action back where it, it was meant to be, but also to sort of think about the things that he knew how to do best, which is to focus on swinging the ball, to be sure that you're sort of consistent And that's what he did. I mean, those six months or eight months that he took out of the game to get better, I think really made him the bowler he was because over the next few years, every year was better than the previous one. And it's quite interesting too, because England was basically doing what Australia was doing. They were looking for 90 mile an hour plus bowlers. And yet Jimmy Anderson has got slower and slower. And we know he can actually bowl at that pace. And the other thing is, I think just on a very basic level, we talked about the professionalism before. England understood what to do with international bowls. So many things went right for him. 
Uh, you talk about in the piece the sort of the Asian conditions versus non-Asian conditions that he's had. Because, again, England now understand that you don't just bowl your fast bowlers to death in Asia. Right. There are different ways of doing it. You bowl them in spells where they don't go for many runs. All those sorts of things have sort of come together. He's so much better in the last, what, four years, really, than he has been for the rest of his career. I mean, as long as his body stays together, he's still such a dangerous bowler. Yeah, and even in Australia, right? I mean, the first sort of couple of tours of Australia were not the best for him at all. I mean, I think he thinks about, was it the end of his first tour or his second tour? I mean, he thinks about it as quite a low point in his career in terms of how well or badly he did. But then after the injury, after he came back, as he improved, and this was something Mike Hussey told me as well, having played him in Australia a bunch of seasons, he said he came back beyond a point sort of as a really lethal bowler. I mean, he couldn't swing it the way he swings it in England, but he had a whole host of other things that he was doing to make sure that he was still dangerous to the batsmen in Australia. Now, the figures for Asian conditions don't quite bear that out. I mean, I talk about how expensive his wickets have been in Sri Lanka, for example, or in India. But I think fundamentally, maybe cricket balls around the world have understood that you can't really expect to find four bowlers or five bowlers who can play together in every kind of condition and who will be equally successful in every single kind of condition. And that you need to sort of be nimble and flexible about the way in which you approach these things. And so that has allowed Anderson in particular, but I'm sure many other bowlers like him, it's allowed them to sort of be relieved of the pressure of having to do what they do in England with the same level of success in South Asia or in in Australia. Yeah, I think you're right. I think also we look for greatness in someone who can bowl in every condition. But the truth is that there are very few bowlers in the history of the world who've been able to do that. And that's because Anderson comes from the north of England. He's not going to come up against those sort of conditions that often. Asian-style conditions are just not something that he's going to go for. And I think you have to understand when you look at Ravi Ashwin or Jimmy Anderson, it's not that they're not useful in foreign conditions or in alien conditions to them. It's that you have to use them better in a different way. So if Ravi Ashwin becomes the bowler in Australia who averages 45, but maybe goes at two and over, and Anderson does a similar job in Asia, you're still blocking up an end. And I think it's just, we as fans that maybe not matured as quickly as cricket boards have, I think they're really starting to understand that. So it's very interesting from that point. I want to talk about his personality. I'm going to give you a story here, which I do not come out of very well, but... A couple of years ago at the uh, Players Union Association thingy where they have a big award, everyone gets dressed up in tuxes. And I always didn't want to go because I like writing from a distance. Occasionally, I want to be very up and close with a player, but I like writing from a distance. It means I'm detached. Whereas the beat writers, the guys who have to write about the teams, they have to know everyone because they're always interviewing them. I like the players to be able to walk past me and go, is that that guy? And not be sure. And I keep walking. Anyway, we happened to be on the table next to Jimmy Anderson, and because he had a lot of friends on our table, he came to our table for this one year that I got dragged to this event. And he ended up sitting in my seat, and we sort of switched around, and I was behind him. And he'd won an award that year for best test player or something, and they put up a bunch of pitches in front. And you know that moment where you forget you're not that close to someone? And as he was bowling up on the big screen, I said, who's that old bastard? Now, it's important to note that I didn't use the word bastard either, (laughs) but we'll leave it there. (laughs) But that sudden moment of him turning and me remembering what Jimmy Anderson is famous for, which is this incredible temper, and then also me realizing that me and him do not have the relationship where I can make that joke. That is how he is known. If you read Vicious Peace from maybe three or four years ago, there's a lot of angsty Jimmy and angry Jimmy in that. 
You spent so much time with him that obviously you got beyond that grumpy Lancashire facade and saw something else, which I find very interesting because I don't think many people have ever written about that side of Jimmy. That, But he was in lockdown and bored and you drilled him on Zoom for hours on end. I mean, it's true, right? I mean, one of the things I did do the experienced journalist thing of leaving it until the very last Zoom call to ask him about his temper and about this whole sort of what he himself distinguishes as Jimmy and James. So in his mind, Jimmy is the grumpy on-field bowler. It's the cricketer, one who is competitive and quick to get angry and so on. And James is the shy young man, or a sort of, I guess, not so young anymore, but man from Burnley, Lancashire, who doesn't really want to talk to too many people, who is kind of awkward in social situations and is quite reserved about the way that he feels. And I think he realizes how paradoxical it is that both these kind of personalities inhabit him at the same time. And so I asked him about this only at the very end. But the shy James, I I can tell you, it took a lot of talking to him to even get past that to any extent at all. And I'm not sure I succeeded entirely. I mean, I'm not even sure that he showed me a side of him that is unknown to other cricket writers who've met him before, who've talked to him before. Uh, He's incredibly reserved. And his father, who I spoke to as well for this piece, said that's what the entire family is like. It's just something that they've grown up with. And he talks about it in his memoir about how he's very awkward in social situations. And this was the most awkward of all social situations, a Zoom call with somebody he had never met before, had never read before. I'm not a cricket writer on a daily basis. And so it's not even like he knows my byline. But I think it was definitely true that I had a captive audience. And I think that helped me on a certain point. He was on Zoom. He had committed somehow in a moment of folly to these hours of Zoom calls with me. And so I think that helped quite a bit. So I, a couple of years ago, talked to an incredibly famous batsman who said that, forget the Australians, Jimmy was the absolute worst sledger he ever came up against as far as just being vicious and being never-ending. I've noticed over the last couple of years that that hasn't happened as much. And you talk about a really interesting thing where he knew his temper was getting on top of him. And so he used a sports psychologist. So at the end of each ball, which I think this is a brilliant thing for any young cricketer to think about as well. After he's bowled the ball, did I bowl a good ball? Did I beat the batsman? Did I do what I wanted to do? It seems by that trick, which is obviously there to stop his anger, and probably the red mist coming up. But that's probably what every bowler in the world should be doing, is after every ball, just doing a quick mental checklist on your walk back. Did I do what I wanted to do? Have I moved him in the crease the way that I wanted to move him? Is he playing the shots that I want him to play? Whatever the things that your bowling does. It seems that from the moment he did that, it's not just the lack of anger, it's that he's thinking about his bowling on a level that makes him almost like a supervillain to a batsman. Yeah, that's true. Although I think when you're a young bowler, And you may still be thinking about all these things, right? You may be thinking about the quality of the ball. You may be thinking about how to get the batsman out. I think maybe as a young bowler and a fast bowler in particular, it's easy to convince yourself that a part of your strategy is actually to unsettle the batsman Mm. so that your next delivery is more effective than it could be otherwise. So I think it's rationalizing how sledging might work in your favor, how it's actually a part of your bowling strategy rather than just an outburst of temper. I think that's quite easy to do. And so maybe Jimmy and several bowlers across history have done this. And maybe some of them have even been quite effective doing it, you know, sort of very targeted sledging in a way that does just enough to make the next batsman unsure about the next ball. But I think Jimmy, obviously beyond a point, sort of reached a level of maturity where he realized that this was interfering with his bowling and his cricket. He mentions this incident where 
he got into what was supposed to be a, a physical altercation with Ravi Jadeja in a test match against India. And I think that escalated to the match referee and he had to sort of come up and explain himself. And that incident really seems to have had quite a big effect on him. And so after that, he decided that he would work with a sports psychologist. He came up with this routine that you described. But it's impossible to sort of, you know, argue the counterfactual because he's done all this. But I also feel that, you know, he's been playing for 20 years. Mm. He doesn't have much to prove to anyone anymore. He has to think about not just getting batsmen out, but also about how to conserve his body, how to conserve his energy in a way that he might not have had to when he was in his 20s. And so I think all of this also, I think, played a role in creating this sort of much more placid, but still quite lethal, Jimmy Anderson, whom we see today. I think it would be very difficult to be a hot-headed 38-year-old fast bowler. I don't think that's ever happened before. Glenn McGrath. (laughs) (laughs) He's the only one, because I think Kirtley and Courtney were certainly not like that at that age. I don't think Rosin was. We haven't had many 38-year-old fast bowlers. That's that's true. That's true. That's the big thing. He's such a freak physically. I was talking to a bunch of cricketers recently, actually, about this. If you look at what we thought good fast bowling bodies were, Brett Lee is kind of the ideal fast bowling body, which is that big fast bowling ass, quite solid athlete. You probably don't want them too tall because once they get too tall, the back starts to go and all those sorts of things. Jimmy is none of those sorts of things. He's very lithe. I mean, his physicality looks much more like a batsman or a wicketkeeper, really. Right. Well, modern wicketkeeper, not, not the old wicketkeepers, but then a bowler does. And you see that if you look at Joffre's body, it's very similar to Jimmy's. And that isn't the way that we look at older bowlers. And I was looking at an older Lancashire bowler recently, just a big ass and solid, big, big guys. And they really have, the physiology has changed. And I think that, let's be honest, Jimmy Anderson has a yoga body. I'm not sure he does yoga, but that's what he looks like, doesn't he? That's true. I mean, he's very light on his feet. He doesn't carry sort of an ounce of extra muscle, which is actually sort of more weight that you have to carry each time you run to the crease. Clearly has sort of the kind of, you know, well-knit, I think is a phrase that is often used for people like Jimmy. But 38, I mean, you think about batsmen playing at 38, and Mm. that's not quite common either. I mean, they sort of have, you know, when we talked about Sachin Tendulkar edging into the late 30s, we thought maybe he was playing too long. Dhoni retired well before he was 38 from Test Cricket. So, I mean, this is unusual, not just for fast bowlers, but just across the spectrum. And it's really a tribute, I mean, you know, he's kept himself fit, obviously, and he knows his body. He decided quite early that he would curtail his limited overs engagements just so he could concentrate on test cricket. He didn't want to play the first couple of seasons of the IPL, for example. But despite all that, I think there's just sort of something that he was born with in terms of the body that he's inherited that just seems to work for him even at this age. One thing I did like, and I don't know how much you've ever seen fastballers' feet, but they are disgusting things. And Jimmy talked about not wanting to look at his own. Ian O'Brien, the New Zealand seaman, might have actually put up a clip a couple of years ago online of him drilling a hole into his toenail to relieve the pressure oh. and having the squirt. Hopefully no one is eating while they're listening to this podcast. No, I mean, my sort of abiding image of fastballers' feet isn't actually from a real bowler at all, but it's from the TV show Bodyline, where <laughs> Harold Larwood comes back to the dressing room every day and takes his shoes off and they just soak with blood. And that was what I actually asked Jimmy. I asked him if he had seen the show. He hadn't. And so then I told him about this incident. And that prompted him to tell me about his own feet at the end of three days of bowling at Lords against South Africa a few years ago. 
He clearly wants to keep bowling. BBC have made a big play with him. Obviously, the podcast has done very well. They've started to bring him in to radio more, although I don't know how they're going to fit Broad, Cook and Anderson into their BBC current rotation, but that's their problem. He certainly has the opportunity if he wants to, having taken as many wickets as he has, to just walk away from the game. Right. It didn't get the feeling, watching him playing the summer and reading your article, that that is on his mind. Well, it's sort of on his mind only insofar as people keep asking him about it. Yeah. And he, he sort of gets a little frustrated by the question. He knows. I mean, look, he's not unaware that he's 38, that fast bowlers don't rarely, if ever, play to this kind of age. And But at the same time, I think he is genuinely thinking about sort of how much more cricket he can get out of his body. He knows how much rest he has to take. And I think the board knows that as well, to their credit. I think they've rested him in a way that's quite sensible for his age. So much as he would like to be out there playing every single test match possible, he knows uh, the back of his mind that it's sort of quite sensible that he be rested for a few of them. But, you know, I mean, I think he genuinely thinks that he can play for a couple of years more. Maybe sort of be the first test fast bowler to cross 40 and uh, well beyond that. I'm not sure if that's statistically true. I'll have to look that up. But, you know, you know what I mean? I mean, this is just Mm. sort of unprecedented for somebody like him. So he hates to be asked about it. And I think, again, I left that question until our last conversation, (laughs) sensibly as it turned out, because he got a little grumpy when I asked him about it. But with this kind of schedule of test cricket that we're likely to see over the next couple of years, which is very little, touring may not be possible because of COVID. Who knows what the next test match series is going to be for England. I think given that, there's going to be so much rest coming up for Anderson between series, that it's quite conceivable that we'll see him play a test match in 2022. You wouldn't write him off at this stage. But thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's such a pleasure. I'm a huge fan. So this has been a total treat. Thank you for listening. You can follow my guest at Samanth underscore S on Twitter. I'm usually there too. I'm also on YouTube and other things. You can find me in lots of places, mostly in my office recording new podcasts. Please review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere really and Share it as far and as wide as possible. These things really help us. And the more people who listen, the easier it is for us to keep making this. Oh, and on that note, this podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon. So thank you all very much. If you want to buy me a glass of bourbon each week, or I don't know, pay our producer, please hit us up on Patreon. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes your headphones fit better. And our theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Crickets. Red Inca listener. Don't forget to also subscribe and listen to Double Century, a podcast where I trawl through old newspaper reports and bitter books from former players to tell the story of our great game. Find Double Century in your podcast apps.